0: This is Diane Horn, your host on the sustainability segment of Mind Over Matters on KEXP Seattle 90.3 FM by mobile app and on the web at KEXP.org. The sustainability segment this morning will be an archive edition from 2000 with the late Marcia Rosenberg, who developed the technique of nonviolent communication and was founder and a former director of the Center for Nonviolent Communication. I spoke with him about how the approach of nonviolent communication can be used to bring about positive social change. What led you personally to become interested in nonviolent communication?
1: I grew up in a very violent neighborhood in Detroit, Michigan. And shortly after my family moved there, we experienced the race riots of 1943. And we lived right in the heart of this situation where many people were being killed. That was a powerful lesson to me as a young boy that this was a world in which your safety could sometimes be jeopardized simply because of your skin color. And then when I went to school, I found out that my last name could be a stimulus for people wanting to be violent. So I grew up with this on my mind, what happens to people that leads them to be so violent at times in dealing with diversity. At the same time i was aware that there were people in the world who were just the opposite of that who enjoyed giving to people and who continued to give and treat people with respect and warmth even under the worst of conditions so i decided that for my work i'd like to learn more about what accounts for these differences in people and what can we do to educate people so that they are like those who enjoy giving and nurturing people rather than being violent with them.
0: What do you feel is the underlying goal of learning how to communicate nonviolently?
1: The underlying goal is to be conscious that what human beings enjoy more than anything else is enriching one another's lives. And so people who resonate to our training are those who are conscious of that and are aware that Many of us have had training that leads us to get disconnected from that and who want to go through life, focusing our consciousness and attention in directions that helps us to continue enjoy giving to one another rather than becoming alienated from one another.
0: You have said that the who's right and who's wrong way of thinking is at the core of violence. Could you explain?
1: Yes, we're about 5,000 years we have been governing ourselves with domination structures in which a few people dominate many and for those structures to maintain themselves people need to be educated to enjoy violence so that we can control people through believing that some people deserve to suffer for what they do and some people deserve to be rewarded and who makes these determinations authority so this kind of education is I believe very faulty. And it requires a language in which we dehumanize people, objectify them, turn them into objects. And that language is a language of moralistic judgments like right, wrong, good, bad, normal, abnormal. So our training suggests that we learn to think in terms of life-serving judgments, judging whether what is happening is in harmony with our needs, not whether it's good or evil.
0: Could you tell us briefly about the four steps in your nonviolent communication technique?
1: The fourth step is to tell people what they could do to make life wonderful for us and to help the other people get clear what they would like from us to make life wonderful for them because we think this obviously is what every human being wants, to make life wonderful for one another. However, we get detached from that because we are... Educated to maintain these domination structures.
0: You have said that the language most of us currently use contributes to oppression. Could you expand on how this is so?
1: Well, our language is a language of implying that there's good people and bad people, and that bad people deserve to suffer for their evil. And so that kind of way of thinking contributes to violence.
0: And why do you consider should a violent word?
1: Again, it's part of this language that is designed to make people subservient to authority. Words like had to, should, ought, must imply that we have no real choice. These are just things that are determined. And How do we know who determines them? Always the highest authority, you see. So this kind of language renders people subservient to the authorities and domination structures.
0: In a recent newsletter from the Center for Nonviolent Communication, you spoke of now focusing your efforts more on social and organizational change. How can nonviolent communication be used to change our current system and bring about more sustainable communities and organizations?
1: Well, these structures that I'm suggesting are contributing to much of the violence in the world, where a few people dominate, many that they rule on the basis of punishment and reward, are basically structures that are made up of human beings. And when we talk about changing structures, we really mean changing enough people's way of looking at things and their willingness to support things differently. So the basic unit I see of social change is a certain quality of connection that we need to make with people who are maintaining domination structures to get them to see that they are being oppressed as well as the others because a domination structure, all people suffer one way or the other. Even the people who seem to have the most power, fame, status, and money suffer immensely if that is obtained at the cost of other people. So that training shows how to engage in all of the levels of interaction necessary to evolve the change from domination structures to life serving structures.
0: In a very practical way, how can a citizen go about using this nonviolent communication to try to approach, for example, a multinational corporation?
1: Well, first of all, the amount of communication that's going to be necessary to change things at that level is probably going to take more than one person. So our training shows, first of all, how to use our training to create teams, support teams that can sustain the membership long enough to create the change. So that's one level, just in creating your support teams. Next, uh, our training, we show how to make our meetings productive as we don't want to burn out a lot of energy just with our allies. So we have almost no energy left to address the structures that are creating the problem. Then a very big problem is what you're suggesting. How do we get to these people in the power positions? Well, there are people that have access to them, so we show people how to get access to the people who have access, and through communicating with them, have them help us to get access to the leaders. Then once we have access to the leaders, our training shows people how to make the best out of whatever time we have with them.
0: What would be a specific example of how that could work?
1: I was involved in a social change project in one community in the Middle West, and A board of people were elected to defeat the project that we were involved in, and it was clear that for us to maintain this project, we would have to get the people controlling this unit. It had to be a school board. It would be necessary for us to have a dialogue with these people in the hope that we could persuade them to change the rules to support our project but they wouldn't communicate with us initially. They refused to answer our phone calls that we were making to set up a meeting. They wouldn't respond to mail. So we had to find people who had access to them, communicate with these people, show them the value that we saw in our program. We did get these people to see that, and then they went and got us the access to the others, arranged after 10 months of hard work on our part to get a three hour meeting with them. Then in this three hour meeting, we did connect. So this is rather typical of social change that sometimes have to put in a lot of energy just to get access to the key people.
0: So do you feel that getting access is basically the main hindrance?
1: Sometimes, sometimes it comes very easy, but then once you have the access, of course, Our training shows if you go into this meeting, once you have access with key people, if you go in with enemy images, you think in any way of the people maintaining the domination structures as bad, evil, whatever, then you're not going to connect. You're in a sense part of the problem if you're thinking that way. So we show people how to prepare yourself for such encounters by translating any of your enemy images just into getting connected to what your own needs and values are so that you can communicate straight from the heart without in any way thinking of the other person as an enemy.
0: When you run into other parties who aren't really interested in connecting with you and would rather just avoid you, are there special techniques you then use to try to get through that block?
1: Yes, one of the primary techniques that we teach is... How to connect with what's alive in other people, regardless of how they communicate. That is, how do you see what that person is feeling and needing at this moment, even if they don't choose to express it directly? They don't know how to express it directly, or they're too frightened to express it directly. So, for example, if a person says, I don't want to have anything more to deal with you. Okay. We try to hear what is the need behind that message? What need is this person trying to meet? and they say, I don't want to talk with you. So this requires some guessing or sensing. I might say to the person, are you feeling uncomfortable at the thought of discussing things further And because you have a need to protect yourself from some of the frustrations that we've had to this point? And if that's getting close, the person might say, that's right, you came in here just wanting to get your way, you're not really interested in what I have to say. Well, now the person is educating me about how we can connect. The person's saying that he or she needs some reassurance, that I'm as open to their viewpoint as I want them to be open to mine. So, in other words, when we use this process of hearing what's alive in the other person, the other person cannot not communicate because we hear every message coming from them, verbally or nonverbally, as an expression of what's alive in them, their needs and feelings, and when we see that, We don't see any enemies, we don't see any resistance, we don't see any criticism. We just see a human being that has the same needs that we have.
0: This is Diane Horn, and we are speaking with Marshall Rosenberg, founder and director of Educational Services for the Center for Nonviolent Communication. Our topic is the role of nonviolent communication in leading to social change. Do you think that political rallies where citizens chant slogans against a particular organization or person are counterproductive?
1: I think it depends on the thinking of the people organizing. If they, again, are starting with the images of the other side as enemies and they are wanting to communicate to the public how evil these other people are, I think that they generate more violence than social change. If they know how to protest with a focus on what their own needs are that are not being met by the present structures and can communicate their needs without implying wrongness or badness on the part of those that don't agree with them, then I think the same event could be very effective. So the event to be effective, I'm suggesting, depends on the consciousness of the people organizing it and whether they're connected to their own needs rather than to some political slogans or images of the other side as wrong.
0: Do you think nonviolent communication would have been useful at the WTO demonstrations in Seattle?
1: Well, I think that many of the people that were there were using nonviolent communication. Some of them have been through our training. There were a lot of different people at that. Some of them, I think, were acting out of the kind of energy that I would support. And I think some of weakened their efforts by associating the cause of people who were concerned about the WTO as violent people. So I think it was a mixed group. And I think that those who went there and were expressing genuine concern for the people of the planet that are being oppressed by certain trade and other policies, and who communicated that clearly without insulting those on the other side, I think they contributed to some effective enlightenment of the population. Those who just look like they're violent and against things, I think they weaken the movement.
0: In your nonviolent communication technique, you say that making a request, it's better to tell someone what you want rather than what you don't want. Is there a good way of applying this principle in, for example, dealing with a company that's polluting a local waterway?
1: Well, yes, I would say first of all, when a group is doing something like that, they're trying to meet needs. They're doing that for the same reason that every human being does everything we do, to meet needs. They have certain needs that are being met by whatever practices they're engaged in. Now, that may not meet our needs, those of us who want to sustain and protect our planet, the ecology of our planet. So we need to find out what needs are being met by those people and show them that we are interested in helping them meet their needs, but in a way that is not harmful to the planet. So we are confident that if we connect at that level with human beings, we show that we are equally as concerned with their needs as our own, we'll find a way to get both sets of needs met.
0: At this point, do you know of any specific examples in the environmental area where nonviolent communication has actually led to success when another technique might not have?
1: Oh, I can think of an ecological group I consulted with in Switzerland. They, When I first worked with them, they had this enemy image of... local politician who was the head of city development projects, building projects in this large city in Switzerland. And they had had frequent interactions with him that only led to competitive harangues and bad feelings. After I started working with the group and showed them how to connect with this man in a way they didn't think of him as evil, they went again now armed with nonviolent communication, had quite a different connection with him he agreed to bring his staff for training in nonviolent communication along with the ecological group, and after both groups had this training, they were quite able to find a way to get the needs that the city official had for wanting to protect the economy in the city, as well as meeting the needs of the ecological group to protect the ecology of the area. In other words, once they got over seeing each other as enemies, they saw that they had similar needs. The ecological group didn't want the city's economy to suffer. This man who wanted to protect the the economy of the city didn't want to destroy the environment. So when they got past their slogans and judgments of one another and saw that they shared the same needs, it wasn't too hard to find ways of getting everybody's needs met.
0: A lot of current political activism is based on making demands. In your nonviolent communication technique, the final step is to make a request but not a demand. What is the basic problem with making a demand?
1: First, we need to define what I mean by a demand. You can't tell whether a request someone makes is, is what I call a request or a demand from how nicely it's expressed. What makes something a request or a demand is how you treat people who have different desires and to honor your request? Do you try to find out what that person's needs are and show that you are equally as interested in their needs as your own? Or do you have single-mindedness of purpose in which you show that you are prepared to do anything that you're gonna have to do to get your needs met without reference to the other person's needs? So in other words, what makes it a demand is when you have single-mindedness of purpose to meet only your own needs and aren't equally concerned with the needs of the other.
0: And what are some good examples of where this has led to problems that you see in people trying to make social change?
1: I would say it leads to problems in almost every walk of life, ranging from when we're working with parents. The parents will say to us, how do I get my child to clean up the room? And I say, is that your objective? And they say, of course. I say, then the child will resist. You see, anytime we have this single-mindedness of purpose, the other side believes that we are only interested in what we want, and not what they want. It's ironic, even often, they would like to do what we want, but when we come at them as though we have this single-mindedness of purpose, it stimulates more resistance, whether it's a child or people in industry. It's just a human desire to be autonomous, to choose to do what we decide to do and not be forced to do it by someone who claims to know what's right.
0: Could you say a few words about the Center for Nonviolent Communication and what your current plans are to spread nonviolent communication around the world for the purpose of bringing about social change?
1: The way that we operate is that if people hear of our work from different countries, they often invite us in. So, for example, at the moment we have a project going in Colombia in South America, and what we are doing there is identifying the people who have similar visions for social change training those people in how to use our training in a wide variety of ways, and we have now made constructive connections with the government who is wanting to explore how we can help them make peace with the two groups that are at war there. We also are training subgroups of citizens to work with drug addicts and train ex-drug addicts how to get other addicts off the streets. We're working with the police there. So we have similar projects like that in Israel, Palestine, Rwanda, Sierra Leone, United States, Canada, about 20-some countries around the world.
0: How effective have your techniques been with the drug addicts? That's such a a difficult problem.
1: Well, we have, unfortunately, lots of experience. I say unfortunately because of how widespread people's use of drugs and alcohol is creating pain for people all over the world. So I would say we're successful, mainly because we start off not with the objective of getting people to stop. You see, whenever you try to get people to stop something, they usually resist. So we approach them not that we're here to stop you from taking drugs. We can't. You've demonstrated nobody can stop you from doing it. What we would like to do is explore what needs of yours are being met by taking the drugs or the alcohol and explore another way of meeting the needs that will be more effective for you and less costly. Now, when people trust that we're sincere about that, that we're not there to try to take something away from them or to get them to stop doing something, but to explore what are your needs that are being met by doing it. Because once we get those identified, we are confident there are other ways of meeting the needs, more effective, less costly, and we've been very effective.
0: You have, for many years, been applying nonviolent communications approaches in places where there have been very serious political conflicts, such as the Middle East. Could you give a specific example of how your nonviolent communication technique has worked as a way of helping to promote peace?
1: Well, first of all, it was helpful in bringing together teams from both Palestine and Israel. We went there, shared what the process was about, found a team of Palestinians, a team of Israelis very excited about how it might be helpful to them in working for peace in the region. And I brought the teams from both sides together to Switzerland and trained them intensively. And now in the 10 years since I've done that, we have schools, many of them in the region, that are acting in harmony with our principles. Palestinian children visit the Israeli schools, Israelis visit the Palestinian schools. We've worked with police, physicians, and uh, starting to get to government uh, people. We have similar projects that we have started in Sierra Leone and Rwanda, where we get the warring parties, members from each side, and train them to how to use our training for peace, also in Serbia and Croatia.
0: In your experience, for people who are trying to learn to communicate nonviolently, what seems to be the hardest for them?
1: The hardest problem for them is, of course, they have been trained from birth on in another way of thinking. So it's, uh, in some respects, like learning a second language, although even more difficult because it's more than just the language. It's actually a way of thinking that we're suggesting that people shift. And the other thing that makes it a challenge is that the majority of people around them are still speaking the old way so that... There's not that many people that they are going to be communicating with who speak in the new way. And the third challenge to it is that many of the institutions that they are living within, families, schools, workplaces, governments, are based on supporting the old way of thinking and language. So to break out of old habits when other people are speaking in the old way and institutions are supporting them, is an enormous challenge, but we're pleased at how people rise to that challenge and find our training enormously helpful, both in liberating themselves from the oppressive nature of the systems and that it empowers them to change the systems.
0: Do you find that there are cultural differences or differences from one country to another in people's ability to learn how to communicate nonviolently?
1: One of the things that surprised me and delighted me the most about my work is the what strikes me is much more the similarities in all of the cultures in terms of their receptivity to our training. We work with people from all religions, rich people, very poor people, and they all seem to resonate to the spiritual base of our process, so it doesn't seem foreign to them, makes sense to them. Now, they all say it's, it's such a simple process, and yet it's so difficult. Simple, because it basically... Teaches people how to stay connected to their heart, to be conscious that the only thing we human beings really want to do is make life wonderful for one another. That's the simple part. But the difficult part is overcoming the other training. But it goes on pretty much the same in every country.
0: Well, we're almost out of time, but what's the message you'd like to leave our listeners with?
1: That we're very pleased that we have people in this region that are willing to offer the training to people who would find it helpful in their families, in their workplace, or in their efforts to create life-serving social structures. So if anybody is interested in furthering their development in this area, we're prepared to offer our support in helping them get the training.
0: Well, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you for this opportunity.
0: You were just listening to the late Marshall Rosenberg, founder of the Center for Nonviolent Communication. For more information, check on the web at cnvc.org. Sustainability segment interviews are available as podcasts. Go to feeds.kexp.org. Again, that's f-e-e-d-s.kexp.org. I'm Diane Horn. Thanks for listening on KEXP Seattle 90.3 FM by mobile app and at kexp.org.